Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Doctors Julie and John Gottman are renowned marriage experts and co-founders of the Gottman Institute, where they take a research-based approach to relationships. The Gottmans provide couples with the tools to help them get their partnerships back on track. And over the years, they've observed and studied thousands of couples looking at everything from how they interacted to body language and more. In their new book, The Love Prescription, the Gottmans share on how to cultivate more intimacy, connection, and joy in seven days. I had so many unlocks during our conversation today about what makes a relationship work and why the Gottmans believe that sustaining the friendship is more important than learning to manage conflict. And I just adore them. And I think you will too. Okay, let's get to my chat with Julie and John Gottman. I'm so excited to be talking to both of you. I'm so excited about this new book too, because I'm a systems thinker, as both of you are, obviously. And I think your work over the years has provided so many frameworks to thinking about intimacy, to thinking about relationships. And I was so excited by how distilled this new offering is, because I think, you know, in our lives right now, there's never enough time. There's so much overwhelm and even when we have the best intentions of wanting to make our relationships work, we're just like, how do we find the time? You know, <laughs> right. I just feel that this book is such an invitation. It's such a small dosage and it feels very manageable. And I, 
I just am always so blown away by both of your ability to continue innovating and continue offering solutions in the way that someone might need. Maybe it's not that, but you can try this. And I think the optionality is so powerful. So what made you both want to write this book? You know, I think we also were aware that people were reading longer books and they might not get through the book. They were struggling sometimes to really absorb the concepts or the principles and to practice the interventions. And we wanted something that people could actually integrate into their lives in an easy fashion. You know, especially, Erica, with COVID, we were thinking about what pressure people are under. It's mm-hmm. like they're, they've been in a pressure cooker for a really long time. They're reprioritizing everything, trying to adjust. Some people happier, some people much less happy. So we wanted to give people something simple, clear, easy, fun, because the last few years have not been fun. (laughs) No fun, very little fun. That's right. (laughs) I can I also interrupt and just say something really quickly before I ask my next question. Mm -hmm. No one who's listening to this can see the two of you, but watching the two of you together is it really speaks to what you're talking about, about physical connection too, because you're not actually touching. There's like a buoyancy between the two of you where you can just tell that there's still physicality and intention in even just how the two of you sit next to each other. And I think that that's something that couples lose over time too. Just how you sit, how are you sitting? Like, what's the what's that feel like? So it's very joyful for me to oh. see it in... <laughs> in action. Yeah, yeah we love each other. It's very much that. <laughs> yes, we anyway, sorry to, to take us off track, but I, I just wanted to call it out because it's, it's oh, very... Nice. Erica, what I have to say in response to you is that he's not only brilliant, but he's really cute. Well, thinking about challenges, so the book talks about how love is more than a feeling. It's a practice, it's an action, and that it's made up of these small moments that both of you have termed these bids of connection. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So one thing we noticed in our apartment lab, where we had 130 newlywed couples spend 24 hours, was that the moments were filled with these attempts to connect with one another, to get their partner's interest their partner's attention, partner's emotional support, affection, humor, you know, all that stuff was just filled the moments. There were tiny little moments. And when we did a follow-up of the couples, the ones who had divorced, when we look back six years earlier, had only connected to these moments 33% of the time. Whereas the couples who were still together, and particularly the couples who were happy, had connected six years ago, 86% of the time, this huge difference. And so we learned in these small moments, we really build an emotional bank account that Mm. has a lot of meaning Mm. for the couple. Let me add to that. The other thing about turning towards and these small moments of connection is that they are so simple. They're tiny and so simple, and they make this huge difference, not only in friendship, 
passion intimacy but also in how couples manage conflict later so let me give you an example let's say that I look out the window and I see this beautiful blue jay on a branch and I say to John honey wow look at that gorgeous blue jay well John has three choices he can either turn towards me and say wow it is beautiful or he can say nothing just ignore what I said which is turning away or he can say would you stop interrupting me I'm trying to read a hostile response right turning against me so that little wow that's neat is all it takes to make the difference between friendship passion good conflict management hopefully and emotional distance hostility cut off connection yeah one of the real mysteries that we solved with this turning toward was you know there was this question how how do you wind up having a sense of humor about yourself when you're in conflict with your partner it turned out that couples who have great relationships over time they have this sense of humor which when you laugh at yourself even when you're disagreeing with your partner reduces physiological arousal well the answer was turning toward when you turn toward actually automatically get that ability to laugh at yourself which is an enormous gift yes i <laughs> i find with my girlfriend and when we are having arguments I, I do tend to get to a giggle, like a giggle apex, you know, where I'm like, like are we actually having this argument, you know? And so I, I really appreciate calling that out, that it does help. I'm curious with turning towards, you know, someone who spent a lot of time with your work over the years, when you answer a bit for connection and you respond to it positively, especially, you know, in the time that we've been living in this pandemic where you don't get a lot of time alone, let's say, and you do want to acknowledge, oh, I see that there's a blue jay out in the window, but you also would like to return back to whatever solitude or thing that you were doing. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of negotiate wanting to turn towards, but also still needing time for yourself? Like, how do you kind of manage that? Because I feel like for me, I, I've always felt a little challenged, especially being someone that, although it doesn't seem like I am, um, I'm quite introverted. And so I need like quite a bit of like internal time and sometimes to be, to constantly want to positively respond or to turn towards can feel sometimes like quite a lot. So how do you kind of manage that? You know, Erica, I totally get what you're saying. I'm also very introverted. I also need solitude mm -hmm. in order to regenerate. And our days are so demanding that that solitude is super important at some point. So when my partner is actually turning towards me, making a bid for connection, let's say, there's several things that I can do if I need solitude at that point. I can say, honey, I would love to talk to you right now, but I'm a little depleted. So do you mind if I just take a little time for myself and then we come back to this so that I have more energy when I can respond to you? Just something like that, something mm -hmm. simple. So 
you know, you're you're basically acknowledging your partner, you're being kind in acknowledging them, but at the same time you're creating a boundary which is saying but and you want to bring your best self to the relationship so that's what you're emphasizing when you say can we delay this <laughs> a little bit of time so oh, that really? i can bring my best self to you let me give you an example of this when i was doing almost all clinical work i was seeing about 40 to 45 clients a week and listening that intensely in a week is really quite challenging. And so when I got home, John would have been mostly alone during the day, looking at data, trying to analyze data and so on, and would really want to share what he was talking about, which would just ultimately be expressed in either mathematical or statistical terms. (laughs) So I'm not really great at those anyway, but to listen to that after, you know, seeing 10 hours of clients, I would give him the hand, not not the the signal you're thinking of all you audience participants, but just a whole hand held up that signaled, honey, there ain't no brain cells left. (laughs) I I hated the hand. He did hate the hand. I got used to it, though. But he did get, he had no choice. He had to get used to it. And then I would come back and say, okay, you know, tell me what you discovered today. Because I really was interested. I just needed a little regeneration before I listened. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. So what really strikes me about what you shared and, you know, I'm opening my book and what I'm currently negotiating in, in my relationship is when I hear you say, Julie, that you would give him the hand, but then you would come back and you would say, I'm I, okay. I want to listen now to me, like two things seem to be happening. One is what you both talked about this like deposit, you know, over time, there's been enough, you know, positive, you know, responses to the bids for connection. So the bank is pretty full, you know, generally full. So it's okay to say, I need that time. But then also I think on your side, you know, John, is this idea that you are giving her the benefit of the doubt that she actually does want to engage with you. There's some trust and there's been something put in. So that kind of withdrawal is okay. That temporary pullback is okay. Yeah, I know. You know what happens when there's enough emotional money in the bank? I remember this one time when I really, I was, I was angry at Julie and 
you know, I went off by myself to kind of nurse a grudge against her. You know, and I kind of enjoyed that, you know, I got, wow, how can she treat me this way? And my own mind wouldn't let me do it. My own mind said, you know, you're nursing a grudge against the woman who took care of you last week when you were sick. You know, the woman who brought you tea, the woman who really loves you as you are. And I go, shut up. I'm trying to nurse a grudge. <laughs> My own mind wasn't letting me do it. Began, I love that part of his mind. <laughs> yeah, so I, I kind of gave up, you know. I sort of went, you know, there's so much money in the bank here, emotional connection in the bank that, you know, I just can't stay angry at her. You know, if I am angry, I've got to come back and say, hey, baby, you know, how about now? Can we connect now? Yeah, yeah, powerful. So let's talk about conflict, because obviously that's something that everyone in relationship experiences. Why do you think focusing on conflict is the wrong way to go about things based exactly off what you just shared? You know, nursing a grudge, like why should we not focus on conflict as much? So we don't want to start with conflict and emphasize conflict in part, I mean, very simply, that it doesn't work to really improve relationships. We've tested that in a research study of ours where couples got one day of a workshop just working on conflict. They got one day just working on friendship. And then they got both days, which started with friendship and then did conflict the second day. And without question, the two day where we started with friendship first was much more successful in a long lasting way because we did follow up than just doing conflict alone. And the reason is because we know that couples need to sustain friendship, they need to sustain intimacy and passion, not just manage conflicts. So they can get really good at managing conflict, but it's not gonna make much difference unless you highlight and strengthen all of the positivity in the relationship too. You need to emphasize that, nourish the positivity. After all, why do we go into a relationship we go into it for that positive feeling that we get and positive experiences together. Right. So to improve the relationship, why would you just work on conflict? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, one of the things that we noticed when couples just focus on conflict, they develop this negative habit of mind where they're really scanning their social environment for their partner's mistakes. Mm. And correct those mm -hmm. mistakes. And when you focus on friendship first, they develop a different habit of mind where they're looking for what's going right in the relationship. And there was a fascinating study done by Robinson and Price, these two women who studied what people did in an evening that was positive toward one another. And what they discovered was in unhappy couples, they miss 50% of the positivity that's there that outside observers can see. So they're really, you know, missing all this positive stuff when they just focus mm. on the negative, right? Mm. And when you notice all the positive stuff, you start realizing that your partner really is appreciating you a lot more than you thought. That's so powerful. And I think this, this idea of really noticing what's right in your relationship and what is 
positive and what brings you there is is such a powerful practice because you know I, I went through a really big relational shift over the past I'd say like 16 months or so it was very easy for me to be in this kind of comparative headspace and critical headspace of like what is she doing right or is this right or just constantly evaluating the rightness of the relationship mm-hmm. and I think that it's it's so much easier to be there oftentimes because our world is and our culture is kind of so negatively wired. There's so much constant external evaluation going on, punitive evaluation going on. And so I think the permission that you're kind of setting up here, you're allowed to look at your relationship and ask yourself, what's really great here? For me, that's an unlock in this conversation. Just be like, be there more often versus in this deficit headspace, you know? Yes, you are so spot on. Exactly. You know, all of us were raised in this culture, typically with a lot of criticism. Most of us have experienced criticism. You know, our our parents or our caretakers attempted to shape us to fit into society in some kind of niche by telling us what not to do. Don't do this. Don't do that. Etc. And so, you know, after a while, you become paralyzed because everything you feel like you're going to do is wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then what do you do in your adult relationship? Well, you can feel the same way. You can mm-hmm. feel, especially if your partner doesn't express appreciation for all the positive things that you attempt to do to please your partner. If you don't hear appreciation, you begin to think, I'm not enough. Just like my parents or caretakers told me, I'm not enough. And you get rejected any minute and you start looking for it, right? You start looking for it. And if your partner has a moment where they say, can I have a little solitude first? You're going to hear that as, oh, she doesn't want to spend time with me. She doesn't like me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just a drag to her. I'm a burden. She doesn't want me. What am I doing here? You know, mm. you start thinking like that when that old message, you know, all the messages we've gotten from school, from family, from society, God, a million messages. You're never perfect enough, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what you bring into the relationship. Not to focus too much on conflict, but I would like to just tap in and ask the both of you, how do you advise navigating a charged conversation or when conflict is coming up? What are ways to to support the relationship even when there is conflict? <laughs> God. Well, we're writing another book about that. That's going to be the next book that comes out, actually. Yeah. What an opportune moment. So we have, we actually have blueprints, literally, you know, what have successful couples shown us? We've studied 3,000 couples. Some of them had long lasting relationships, some didn't and split up or were unhappy. So what were the successful couples doing during their conflicts? And You know, a a couple of things that they did that were so important is one, describe themselves. They describe their feelings about the situation and they talked about what they needed from their partner. And in particular, they mentioned 
the positive need, not the negative need. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is the positive need is how can your partner shine for you? What can they do to shine for you to make you feel loved and important and valuable? What can they do for you? And you say what you need rather than the negative need, which would be stop doing this, don't do that, don't leave messes, don't be lazy, don't be selfish, Mm. right? Which always hurt and make the other person want to withdraw or be defensive. So we saw positive results when couples describe themselves, not describe their partners. And the other big thing that they did is they really worked hard to understand their partner's point of view before mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they worked on a, a solution or a compromise. And they did that by asking each other big, big, big questions like, okay, so with your position on this issue, is there any childhood or background history here? that plays a part in your position on this? Are there a set of values or beliefs or ethics that guide your position on this? Mm -hmm. What's your underlying purpose Mm. for this particular attitude towards this problem? So listening, just listening to understand at a deeper level created huge breakthroughs in people being able to manage even gridlocked issues. Yeah, we found 87% of couples using those questions could actually, using just six questions, could actually make breakthroughs on Mm. problems that have been gridlocked in the relationship for years. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, well, very excited about that next book. Curious, though, thinking about gridlocks in relationships, let's talk a little bit about physical touch because it's often one of the first things that couples lose. What do you both see as the biggest roadblocks to intimacy between partners? And and what do you think helps increase that? Yeah, there was this great study done by the Sloan Center at UCLA. And what they did was they put cameras and microphones in the homes of 30 couples who each had a career and children. And these dual career couples, they found, just neglected the relationship. They spent less than 10% of an evening in the same room. On average, they talked to each other 35 minutes a week. That's all. And most of that talk was about the the long to-do list that they had in their life. Who's gonna do what when? You know, so they, they were neglecting the relationship. They weren't having weekly romantic dates. They weren't turning toward each other. They weren't connecting emotionally. They weren't playing and having fun together. Fun had come to die in the relationship and adventure (laughs) was gone. And so really it's very simple when you just maintain that kind of connection. 
you really change the relationship. You nurture it. The largest study done about love was done with 70,000 people in 24 different countries. And they really had one question. What's the difference between people who say they have a great sex life and people who say they have an awful sex life? You know, how are those different? And you would think that a lot of what they found was what people do in the bedroom. But all their findings were about people saying, I love you every day. People Mm. touching one another, people being affectionate, even in public. Couples cuddling. You know, only 4% of the non-cuddlers said they had a great sex life. 96% of the non-cuddlers said their sex life was awful. And, you know, it it was small things. It was touching, giving compliments, being grateful, having weekly romantic dates. That's what made the difference. Yeah, let me add something. In heterosexual relationships in particular, you'll often have the dilemma that a woman needs to feel safe emotionally in order to be physically intimate. The man needs physical intimacy in order to feel emotionally close, right? Mm -hmm. So there's your dilemma. So women of course you know we come from thousands of years of history of violence violence rape abuse being the other you know the second class or 10th class citizen and so given the vulnerability especially of passion or sex we've got to feel safe because that history of feelings is deep in our bones deep in our bones you ask a woman to walk into an underground garage and you ask a man to walk into an underground garage right and is the woman nervous is the man nervous well the woman always is the man usually is not you know there there's a good example so touch we have found also is so important in relationships. It's like food and water. When babies are not held and touched, as they saw in some orphanages after World War II, they died. They actually died. They were nourished, they were kept warm and dry, but they died anyway because they weren't being held. They called it failure to thrive. Mm-hmm. And we never lose that need. We all need to be touched, all of us. So the more we can be affectionate with one another, touch one another, be safe, and to understand our partner's history about touch and what kind of touch they like, what kind of touch they don't like, then the better our relationship is going to be. I love that. And I love also your acknowledgement of for cis women or anyone that identifies that way, the psychic, physical, societal trauma that we carry and how that impacts our ability to accept touch, to even sometimes define what pleasurable touch is. There's all of these components. And so I think that that call out is really important. And then that encouragement also to just talk about what feels good. I think that's something, you know, my girlfriend and I are always talking about. I always like to talk about sex and how did it feel and that feel good for you and what's working because it's just, it's just us. So let's, let's try, let's try and like figure it out. 
you know otherwise like what's what's the point you know I'd love for both of you to just actually take us through the seven days though very briefly like what those points are in terms of you know in in a week how do you how do you do it how do you bring bring that vitality back to that relational space well let's see well the first thing is just contact so what is contact contact means being in touch with our partner connecting with our partner actually recognizing their existence <laughs> talking to them yeah. just opening up and talking to them and of course there's some vulnerability to that right presenting yourself to your partner as you really are not on your best behavior or not withdrawn and uh, isolated but making contact with your partner that's one very important piece another important one is what we call love mapping and love maps in a nutshell mean how well do you know your partner's internal world and mm -hmm. how well does your partner know yours and by internal world i mean their values their beliefs their feelings about different aspects of their life their history, their most embarrassing moment in childhood, what their mm. dreams are, what their aspirations are, mm. etc. You know, there's lots to know. And what's operative there is asking each other big open-ended questions. The kind of questions we might have asked each other when we were dating at first, just to find out mm. who the other was, right? Well, we have to do that over time also because each of us individually is evolving. We're mm -hmm. changing mm -hmm. by, mm -hmm. and responding with, you know, more fluid change to what's happening around us and in the world in general. So we've got to keep up with who our partner is. That's the second one. The third one is fondness and admiration. And what we mean by fondness and admiration is not only feeling respect for our partner, care for our partner, noticing what's special about our partner, but it's also the words coming out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, just yes. from your lips, not just being held inside, inside your brain. Gosh, that was that that was really a nice moment we just shared. She's so wonderful not saying anything <laughs> yes because it's always happening inside you know you need to say say that it's, it's very tender when you acknowledge those those moments you know it's <laughs> yeah. like and that, that that goes a long way it you know yes sure but you know the other thing too erica is it takes courage it mm -hmm. takes courage you have to be brave to say you mean so much to me mm -hmm. i love you because you're handing that person your open self. And of course, they can choose to hurt you if they want to. And hopefully, they're not going to do that. But the vulnerability it takes to say, I love you, is really showing your underbelly to that person. Totally. You know, the most tender part of you. That was a perfect word for it the tenderness of it, those feelings. So saying it, expressing it in all kinds of ways, the more the better. Every single day is terrific. Turning toward, which we've talked about, 
you know, even just awareness that your partner does express their needs, either verbally or non-verbally, just observing your partner and looking at how they let you know what they need and what they want is so powerful because a lot of conflict comes from assuming your partner knows what you need, though you haven't expressed it. So if you make that real and really let your partner know what you need, and if you're looking for those bids for connection, it's amazing how much more you're like a mind reader. You're, mm. you're able to really know what's going on around you. You're not blind to it. You don't, you don't take it in the neck, you know, because you know what your partner feels and needs. You're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Great. Totally. Yep. So another is touch and sex. So we've talked about that a little bit and how important touch is. And, you know, even if you're not comfortable with erotic touch, affection goes a long way towards helping bonding with your partner. Every time you touch for, let's say, hugging for 20 seconds, you are releasing oxytocin, which is the hormone of bonding in both your partner and yourself, which feels great. It's also the hormone of trust. Yep. So Paul Zak, who mm. Paul Zak, who wrote a book called *The Moral Molecule*, and studies the trust game, and mm-hmm. turns out that when people, you know, spray oxytocin up their nose, or if they hug for 20 minutes or kiss for six seconds, they also get the same effect. Mm-hmm. They build more trust and more connection automatically. That hormone of connection is true for all mammals and. You and your dog as well. <laughs> you look at your dog's eyes. You're both secreting oxytocin. You build trust through this connection. Another thing that we talk about in the book is really saying thank you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, building gratefulness and creating a culture of appreciation in the relationship, even over small stuff like thanks for making the bed, thanks for getting the coffee. And are just these small things where you really are noticing what your partner is doing and just saying thank you and appreciating it can be very powerful in a relationship. Right. And then the last thing is dreams, really sharing mm-hmm. your own dreams with each other. Mm-hmm. How often do we do that? You know, again, that's really vulnerable because mm-hmm. many times we may have talked about our dreams in the past and somebody said, forget about it. You're not going to get that. You're not going to do that. You're not good enough for that. You know, you don't, that takes a lot of money. You're not going to do it. You know, whatever it is. And dreams are just your aspirations for what you want to experience before you die. (laughs) No, that's all they are. What do you want to experience? What are your dreams? And sharing those with your partner means just telling your partner what they are and asking for your partner's support in fulfilling them. Your partner doesn't have to have the same dream. So, but it's great if they tell you what their dreams are. So I'll give you an example. I had the dream to go kayaking as close to the Arctic North Pole as I could. And there was a boat that left from the north of Norway to head straight up as far as they could go before the ice hit. And so I asked John if he would come with me 
and do that because I wanted to kayak up there. Well, John hates cold. <laughs> John has to have the thermostat at 72, otherwise he's <laughs> comfortable, right? So it's definitely not 72 up in the Arctic. <laughs> Bless him, he went with me. Mm -hmm. And he stayed indoors. He's a classic indoorsman. He has mm -hmm. clothes for being an indoorsman. And <laughs> he sits in his red leather chair. And there's a little lever he can pull. You know, that's his athletic activity. <laughs> and then he can read physics and math. And that's his dream. Well, that sounds a little different. But he went with me to the Arctic and he sat inside, right? And he read whatever he wanted to read, a million British mysteries, right? <laughs> and I went kayaking with 10 other people in the Arctic and would come back really excited and happy after the day. And he was excited and happy to share who did it <laughs> in the mystery books he was reading. So, you know, we had a wonderful time. That's an example of sharing your dreams and fulfilling each other's dreams, mm -hmm. even if the dreams are the opposite, even if they're your nightmare. I, I can't tell you how much I love this story and have just loved this conversation because what you two just described is is true compromise, right? To me, there's such beauty in acknowledging that you are very different. But then there are these component places, obviously relationally and you know intellectually, where you both deeply overlap. But I think at least my experience is that our culture really exalts this idea of like sameness in couples mm -hmm. or couples who are you know, like a power couple and we like we cycle together and we we, we do this <laughs> together and we do that together right. you know and it's like right it does exist totally exists but it, more or less it's a it's a fallacy oftentimes there's deep divergence and we don't talk enough about how to nurture that and so i just love hearing that he came and he didn't go outside we meet over dinner because we both love food. <laughs> we love food. Yeah, exactly. And that's, but I feel like that story in itself, as your all of your work is, is just permission. Permission to be different. Permission to find where there are po points of, you know, cohesion. But that the love between you allows you to make that compromise. The interesting thing is that we're not attracted to our clone. We're not attracted to people who are just like us. We're, we're attracted to people who are different in interesting ways. You know, that's where romance develops. In fact, the limited research that's been done on this shows that women are most attracted to men, heterosexual couples, who are genetically most different from them in the immune system, the genes of the immune system. Mm -hmm. And those are the pheromones that women find more attractive. And they actually like those people better when they meet them. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we're not looking for our clone. We're looking for something very different, particularly women are who, you know, are thinking logically about partners. And we make the mistake when we get together of trying to convert this person to us, <laughs> make them like us. And that, that part always fails. I'm so glad that you brought this point forward. How do you curb that desire to want to clone your partner or make them like you? How do you really nurture your 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 difference 
and and not see your difference as a, a, a problem, especially over time, like later, post the limeracy. How do you celebrate the difference? How do you nurture that difference? Well, again, you know, it circles back to what is your partner doing right? So, mm. you know, if you're hearing from your partner exactly what you already know, what you already feel, what you already think, whoop-de-doo, you know, it's just a duplication of you. But mm. if your partner is thinking differently and you take the time to really understand, then what you are receiving enriches you. Yeah. It's enriching to mm. Can I tell a story about that? I grew up in New York City, so for me, nature was, you take a subway to Central Park, you put the blanket down on the grass, you have a picnic, and then you go home and you wipe the nature off before you go inside. <laughs> for Julie, it, she slept in the forest at night as a little girl. Mm. And the differences were so big between us that we had a big argument because she wanted mm to buy a cabin in the woods, a little cabin. And I thought, no way, we're not doing that. <laughs> and when we finally did it's it- It's dirty. Yeah, <laughs> and when we did it as an experiment, when we actually did that, I loved it. And mm. I learned from her how wonderful the forest is and mm. how peaceful it is and how beautiful it is. And, you know, and it really changed me. I was able to, be different from Julie, but really learn from her mm. how wonderful the forest is. And I, you know, I never really experienced that before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I think that this idea that if we stop trying to make our partners like us and celebrate our differences, that we can be enriched. I think that word was really poignant for me, just mm -hmm. that you can be enriched by your partner. You know, mm -hmm. and I think enrichment is better than like you can learn something because I think learning sometimes just that word can create like there can be work there. Enriching pressure, feels much pressure. Mm -hmm. pressure. Right. Like, am I listening? Am I taking it in exactly? And it's like enrichment's more. It's celebratory, you know. Yeah, it's celebratory. Well, I have loved talking to both of you so much. I really, I hope that everyone goes out and gets this book. I, I mean, it's absolutely worth having in your library and sharing with friends and anybody who's negotiating any kind of relationship. Thanks for listening to today's conversation with Julie and John Gottman. Their book, The Love Prescription, is out on September 27th. Be sure to pre-order a copy today. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.